0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty,
1: and joining me today is... Corey, where am I? Not crying. Ah. Sorry, I forgot to think about one, so that's what you got. Man, maximum effort. Um, there you go. Should
0: have had ChatGPT write one for you. Exactly, um, that's a good point. On today's episode, we will be covering, again, chat GPT and some additional studies around it. Then we'll dive into some latest TTPs from a North Korean backed threat actor. And then finally, we will end with a discussion of the CVSS or Common Vulnerability Scoring System. Um, with that, let's go ahead and, I don't know, help Corey find his way into the episode. So let's uh, start this week by beating the dead horse that is ChatGPT. Uh, So uh, BlackBerry, which I guess pausing for a second, BlackBerry is a company still exists.
1: I know, right?
0: Didn't they get bought by like, no, they bought bought, Silence. uh,
1: Yeah, yeah. And by the way, what the heck is they disappeared? Like is Silence even a thing now? I sure haven't heard that name for three years.
0: No. Anyways, um, BlackBerry does still exist as a company, even if they aren't making their fun little physical keypad phones. Actually, crap, maybe they still are. I don't know. Um, but they clearly still have a, a research arm of the organization, or at least a, a marketing arm. Uh, because last week they published a survey where they asked 1,500 IT and security professionals uh, various questions around their thoughts on ChatGPT, being used to drive AI-infused cyber attacks in the next one to two years. Um, so, uh, starting with some of the key findings from it, uh, I, I think Corey and I will both have some hot takes along the way, uh, but from the stats from a few of the things they asked, first off, they said 51% of those asked uh, predict that we are less than a year away from a successful cyber attack being credited to Chat GPT. And 78% believe it will
1: certainly occur
0: within two years.
1: Uh, so pause at that I on, one for a second. Uh, w- I was only five years early on our, our prediction of that. I, I guess we didn't use the word chat EPT, but we predicted AI-driven attacks quite a long time ago. But yeah, it is it was... interesting to see it come closer to reality. Chat GDP definitely contributes. Our prediction is what, like AI-driven
0: chatbots or something? The,
1: the, yeah, I'm thinking of one even earlier than Mark oh. that you may not remember because I think it was before our dystopian Seattle video. It was another Seattle video where I was in various locations in Seattle. Uh, yep. But this was uh, uh, very AI-specific, you know, AI being used for fishing and stuff like that. Which, by the way, is we'll get the, the, the stats on that one. Why don't you keep going with the survey?
0: Yeah, so seventy-one percent believe that nation states are already leveraging ChatGPT for malicious purposes. I, I mean, I doubt that they're leveraging it. I bet they're. I one hundred percent believe they're at least exploring it. Like, I guarantee our government and other governments are researching what ChatGPT or at least large language model machine learning algorithms can be used in potentially nefarious activity, but. Actively and I suspect the
1: governments may have their own language models and AI algorithms beyond just this public open source one. So why, uh, on one hand, why reinvent the wheel? I'm certainly sure they could uh-huh. use it. And maybe the North Koreas of the world that don't have the budget will. But I, I, I bet you the NSA has, has their own tools.
0: Yeah, I, I think you make a good point there where maybe it's like, you know, foreign to us governments, like not United States doing it. I have to imagine the US with their infinite funding for the military apparatus and their intelligence apparatus have their own models where they're not feeding in their intelligence into this private company and instead using their own things. Yeah,
1: DARPA is known for doing grand challenges, spoiler alert. So uh, I don't think they do those just for craps and giggles. That was me trying to censor myself. So I'm sure there's some sort of result of them paying out a million dollars to have uh, other people make AIs. Yeah,
0: uh, we'll get to that in a little bit too. Um, so uh, the majority of uh, respondents believe that chat GPT will primarily be used for beneficial or like friendly uses. But a lot of them agree that there are potential malicious or evil uses for it as well too. Um, key stats from that one, going to run through it rapid fire. believe that it will help threat actors craft more believable phishing emails. 49% believe it will be used to help less experienced threat actors improve their technical knowledge and develop their skills. 49% also believe it will be used for spreading misinformation. 48% believe it will be used to create new malware. And 46% believe it will be used to increase sophistication of threats and attacks. A few of those I agree with. A few of them I very much disagree with.
1: Which ones are you disagreeing
0: with? So we talked about this last episode, the one before that, um, where chat GPT is a very specific type of machine learning model. It's a large language model. It's designed specifically to understand the English language and human communications using it. And in that regard, it's fantastic. Like It is uh, very difficult to tell the difference between something output by chat GPT versus just a human typing it up. In fact, I think it just passed like the bar exam for New York is what I saw recently. Like it's clearly a strong model for human communications and like asking a question and getting a well thought out response. Large language models are not designed to write software code though. And yes, we've seen examples of it output very rudimentary and basic computer malware, ransomware, little code snippets. But at the end of the day, everything it's output so far is extremely basic because that's not what it's designed to do. So, my thought process is totally makes sense for phishing emails and misinformation, but malware crafting now not so much. Not with Chat GPT specifically.
1: I, I feel like it might help to create new malware for the script kiddies. Like I, I would, agree, everything you said I agree with. By the way, in general. I think that's why maybe the 46% to increase the sophistication of threats. It won't increase the sophistication of malware. Uh, it will increase the sophistication maybe of spear phishing. Uh, but, so I, I agree with you. It doesn't create good code. But there's a ton of script kiddies out there. And they use crap tools all the time and crap malware, by the way, does still work. Uh, so I could actually see script kitties use it to make bad malware, as you said, we know it can write code rudimentary code, but when you're just learning and you don't know what to do, uh, I, I could see them using chat GPD to get some brute force, crappy little rat out, and then maybe learn a bit about the process after but i do agree with you it's not necessarily going to increase the sophistication of said malware
0: yeah that's a good point like it it can develop working malware payloads in fact it has and it can develop just working i've seen a lot of uh, like sysadmins use it to create just powershell scripts to make their everyday easier and they work but they're extremely basic and in the world of cybersecurity like you just said though that doesn't that it still works we still see like Mimikatz used all over the world, even though it's like it Mimikatz is well coded. Down. I mean, yeah. what's
1: funny is seeing some really crappily coded old Delphi freaking rats still succeed. And uh, sometimes the source leaks, and it's just this one oh one crap code that often has its own memory corruption vulnerabilities. And and but nonetheless, I mean, <laughs> if you're sending a, a rat to a grandma, it doesn't have to be pretty code just has to open a back door.
0: So I don't think chat GPT is going to be the thing that drives like malware evolution, but agree. that doesn't mean that like AI and machine learning aren't going to be used in that and aren't currently being used in that as well, too. And we'll get into some examples of how AI is being used actively in vulnerability and um, attack management. But I do think there's a future where there's a AI model specifically developed to craft malware. I mean, crap, we see Absolutely. GitHub with Copilot pilot. right now can effectively write a full-on computer program on its own with very basic input prompts from the actual developer. It's one step away from just saying, hey, open AI, write me ransomware that you know injects itself into another process. Like, I think it's probably fully capable of doing that. Hopefully there's guardrails on it. That'd be a fun research project to test at least.
1: I got to watch Space Odyssey 2001 again. That whole idea of, Hey, Hal, write something to do this for me has become I'm a sorry, reality. I
0: can't do that.
1: <laughs> Truth is, he didn't want to do it. <laughs> he You can. Um,
0: rounding out the research study, so 95% believe there needs to be some form of government regulation on chat GPT or at least AI usage. Uh, 85% believing that responsibility is either moderate or significant, which. You know, it's I get it. It's a new it's not really new, but it is a scary implementation of something that like, I don't know, it feels very futuristic. And it feels like we're moving faster than our ability to understand the ramifications of it. that's definitely where the government steps in in order to
1: help corral some of that, too.
0: AI was always
1: going to evolve exponentially, in my opinion. I mean, like like we said before, we joked about how bad it was uh three years ago but we also talked about it it all comes down to big data like the the more (laughs) data it gets over time the better it gets it it, you know its worst version of itself is just an early period of time it only goes up from there so yeah i i as far as regulation i don't i don't know how how do you regulate people writing code
0: you know well, I mean, so we do have some regulations in cybersecurity in that space, like export grade um, encryption protocols and things like that. I and mean, the reality is like, who actually follows those? I guess if you're a company based in the US, you have to in certain circumstances. Now that has
1: something simple and definable, like the, the strength of the encryption. 64-bit is fine, 128-bit or 256-bit is not mm-hmm. fine. How do you grade AI models? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like you say, I think it's going to be moving faster uh, than we can understand it. And uh, damn, with our bureaucracy regulations already slow, so I think the cat's out of the bag. But I mean, to be positive, I actually agree with the first thing. Chat, GPT and AI in general is generally good. All technology is benign. It's just up to society and humanity to use it for good and tell people that use it to, for evil to to screw off. So, and to get rid of those evil folks. So I, <laughs> it's a good old-fashioned people problem but I have hope that most of the world is still good and we'll use it to actually travel to Mars. Maybe we've got a future where
0: there's like some intelligence grading or test for like machine learning or AI models. And then
1: based off the score, that's what you're allowed to like it's so already passed it the Turing test, so we have to get it a little higher. It, it needs like a, what is what is AI Mensa? Because I guarantee you it's going to be way higher than our Mensa grade. <laughs> it isn't like a score of 140 grade, and I don't know, but is the Mensa top score 200? AI will be like into 10 billions. <laughs> I mean, it's literally already
0: passing bar exams and other, what are supposed to be extremely difficult tests around the world.
1: So it's, crap, it's probably better than me. The good news is I, I still think it's rather dumb. It just has all the data in the world at its fingertips. <laughs> and more
0: every day as people continue feeding in and questions to it, like it learns from everything that people have been prompting it for the last two months since it's been out too.
1: Man, Megan, I uh, just buzz marketed a movie that I just recently watched. Uh, that couldn't come out at a better time. If you haven't seen that movie and you're freaked out about chat GPD. Is that uh, the little media. creepy doll thing? Uh, yeah. She's actually an AI robot.
0: <laughs> okay, well, zero percent chance of me watching that movie ever.
1: So, <laughs> Mister, I hate horror. Exactly. Uh, I've been suffering
0: through, not suffering. I've actually been thoroughly enjoying the Walking Dead TV show. But that is oh, you the mean Last
1: of Us, probably Last of Us.
0: Last of Us. Yes, Walking I can, Dead. I love. I can ever.
1: read your mind. Too many people died.
0: Um. Anyways, back to the top. Shows. Yes. <laughs> This is a security podcast, not a television review podcast. Um, so this isn't the only implementation of artificial intelligence in cybersecurity, though. Like Back in 2016, uh, we were at that DEF CON specifically where at I DEF CON a in lot of Vegas, there was the grand finale of DARPA's Cyber Grand Challenge, where basically it was, I think, a million dollar prize. They invited teams to develop artificial intelligence systems that could go and identify and exploit vulnerabilities in... Programs and software. They specifically had, like, they created brand new, fresh systems for them to go poke at with servers, no publicly known net- network
1: yeah. services. And they exactly. both had the same network services that they had to both defend and attack.
0: And it was a team out of, like, Carnegie Mellon, I think, uh, their team yeah. Mayhem, I believe, that ended up winning it. Uh, so that's one example of using AI machine learning to actively attack and exploit things. But they actually had that. AI machine was literally just a giant server rack full of computers. A bunch of
1: them, yeah.
0: Uh, They had it go compete in the human capture the flag contest at Ah. DEFCON that year, and it came in dead last. Now, it didn't come in last in like every category all the time, uh, but it did at least receive the fewest amount of points. So it does seem to be like it's there and it's clearly learning. Uh, Although, crap, this was 2016. It's been six years. Maybe like half the threat actors we're seeing right now are actually built by this machine.
1: I think that might have been around the same DEFCON where we were making fun of the talk where someone wrote a script with AI that was just ludicrous. But I've read ChatGP scripts five years later, and one day it's going to win an Oscar. So I don't know, man. I'd be a little scared of the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge now.
0: (laughs) Because it is like they are
1: actively using this technology now. The U.S. government
0: is uh, now, whether they're using it as readily as real human threat actors, who knows, but it totally makes sense that, you know, DARPA doesn't do this for free. They're not just handing out
1: millions of dollars. Yeah, that millions of dollars is because they want a defense fund. So that's that's why I alluded at the beginning that uh, there are definitely nation states that are getting into this.
0: And we're not the only ones too. Like, so China had their own, what they called it, the robot hacking games, starting in 2017, where actually that first, I think two years, They invited the United States, Russia, Ukraine to play in it, too. But since then, it's only been Chinese universities and organizations invited. And it's at this point fairly closed to the public. So we're not the only ones poking around in this, which clearly makes sense.
1: There's um, good news though. Remember those AIs were actively patching zero day in their own things. Correcting. And I, I got to tell you what, I still can't get every admin to patch on time. So I think we need an AI to do your patching for you because most most of the people I know aren't keeping up.
0: Yeah, with you on that. So, I mean, if there's anything to take away from this research study, like the reality is chat is fantastic at mimicking a human and that will potentially have impacts on things like phishing or even misinformation was one of the topics they had. I don't think we're in a future where we have to worry about like the next zero day being developed by chat GPT specifically. There's other AI or machine learning models that may contribute to that, but chat GPT at this point is just a fun little tool for creating human readable or human understandable conversations, I guess.
1: Gotta tell you, we're down on cryptocurrency later, but if chat GPD went public, I would buy, buy, buy.
0: Yeah, well, crap Microsoft's investing another ten billion dollars, I think, into it and Musk already the big did. Search engine. Uh well, Musk kills everything he touches, so maybe that's not a good omen.
1: Um, I, I I hope Musk kills everything because I'm I'm not a fan of his, but I actually am not sure if that's true yet. That's, I know. I'm at Tesla just rebounded with their price drop. Twitter seems to be thriving despite its crap, and it is utter crap. <laughs> okay, fair. People, Jump the gun. P- humanity Asping is attracted years. to crap. I go up and down. Humanity is great. We'll be fine. People aren't bad. <laughs> then I remember Twitter. Oh, yeah, we're all screwed. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: a fair analysis. Anyways, moving on. Um, so also last week, a cyber convol- consulting firm called uh, With Secure published a actually very extensive report. It was like 35 pages uh, detailing the latest activity from our favorite
1: threat actor known as Lazarus. I run um, a cyber consulting agency called Without Defense.
0: <laughs> so,
1: okay. uh, A for effort, B minus for execution. (laughs) (laughs) Good job with Secure. I actually like you. Sorry for the dumb dad joke.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty interesting and decent name. But anyways, moving on. So if you're not familiar with Lazarus, they are the North Korean state-sponsored threat actor that primarily focuses on earning revenue for North Korea. Uh, So they've been responsible. Can you call
1: it revenue? I'm sorry if you're stealing. I'm not going to call it revenue. I don't give a. I think it's
0: technically still revenue. It's illicit (laughs) revenue.
1: But Screw that. I mean, come on, freaking. What? self-respecting country is going to resort to... Well, I know Ah, what self-respecting country, (laughs) but I'm so irritated by it. I used to be able to say nation states are not idiots that attack like little script kitty criminals. Get your head out of your butt, North Korea.
0: Or actually, get your
1: leader's head out of his butt. Go overthrow that moron. I think self-reflecting,
0: or self-whatever is probably as far from the reality as it could possibly be with North Korea. Um. So, but anyways, on the revenue earning front, uh, they like to go after crypto cryptocurrency exchanges lately. They've developed and released quite a few ransomware attacks, including WannaCry back in 2017, allegedly most likely. Uh, but they aside from the revenue earning for the they attacked career, Sony
1: Pictures <laughs> because practice. of a movie pointing out how stupid that dude with his head up his butt is. They uh, <laughs> also
0: do a lot of espionage as well, too, uh, primarily to like uh, improve North Korea's own knowledge on topics like healthcare and things like that. But as Corey just tinted at sometimes they hack an organization just because they hurt their feelings. <laughs> um, <laughs> they they've been making it pretty big lately though. so they stole six hundred and twenty five million dollars in ethereum last year uh, by attacking the the Ronin bridge. so Ronin, it's like a uh, man, I guess time to dive into cryptocurrency for a second. So there's primary blockchains Yay. like Bitcoin, yeah, Monero, Ethereum, uh, where you know those are the ones we're familiar with. They're easy to trade on a crypto exchange, so and so forth. Downside of them is they tend to have higher transaction fees and it can take a bit of time for your transaction to actually get confirmed on the blockchain just because they're the primary one. They are the most heavily used one. To counteract that, there's what's called sidechains, which are basically... Alternative blockchains that track one for one with something, so like Ronin tracks with Ethereum, instead of getting uh, one Ether, you get one, I don't know what the heck it's called, Ronin coin, something like that. And because they're lesser used, maybe a little more tailored for a specific use, uh, transaction fees on it are significantly less and confirmation times are significantly lower. So Ronin is used for a couple of video games called Axie Infinity and Sky Mavis. Uh, which the fact that there's a cryptocurrency video game just grosses me out a little bit, uh, but also makes sense with microtransactions. Yay, exactly. I,
1: I don't know, but I assume
0: so. Basically, <laughs> instead haven't... of earning Ether directly while playing the game, you earn like Ronin coins, for lack of a better word, and you can cash those out one for one with Ethereum at any other point in time. Uh, or if you're in North Korea, you can cash them out to the tune of six hundred and twenty five million dollars whenever the heck you want. Uh, which was what happened uh, about a year ago. Uh, More recently, in January of just this year, they stole $100 million in Ethereum from another side chain, uh, this one called Harmony. So anyways, that was the background on North Korean Lazarus. Um, But uh, the report in this case starts in August of 2021, where uh, WithSecure was brought in for incident response investigations with one of their clients. Um they identified malicious activity that started back in August 2022 where the threat actor gained access through an exploit of two known vulnerabilities in a Zimbra mail server. So Zimbra being a alternative to Exchange or what have you. Uh they used those vulnerabilities uh, in order to drop a web shell, which is how they kicked off the whole attack. Um with that web shell access, two days later, uh, they dropped another larger tool for reconnaissance. Basically it was like a file mapping tool for the web server. Uh, after that, they installed the pLink and three proxy tools, um, which back in there for attribution, the three proxy tool they used was actually the exact same file, like exact same MD5 signature uh, of another one used by Lazarus previously. Uh, they then exploited a known vulnerability in PKExec called PwnKit, which I think we talked about a year and a half ago when it came out, uh, to escalate their privileges from local to root on the mail server. Uh, then with that access, they started um, retrieving at all email messages. And they stored it in a single CSV, which then one month later, so this is like the end of September now, they exfiltrated that five gigabytes of data over SSH. Uh, over the next month, which is now October, they moved on from the mail server to vulnerable a vulnerable Windows XP client. So remember, this is October 2022. And yes, they are targeting a Windows XP client then. Um, they also, alongside that, modified the login script for that Zimbra mail server to log user credentials into a text file. Uh, with their access on the XP machines, they harvested credentials by exporting the registry in the end of October. Uh, they accessed a second server around this point, too, uh, and we're able to get a list of domain admins and domain joined computers on that machine, they modified the Wdigest registry key, uh, which basically allows or tells the windows machine, uh, to store credentials in memory. So it caches them in memory, very common technique by cyber threat actors, because then they can then use Mimicast or other tools to dump the LSAS process memory and grab credentials right out of there. Uh, then now in early November. They deployed a cobalt strike beacon to two IPs, so command and control back into the network, and ultimately exfiltrated 100 gigabytes of data from the network over a period of a week. Um, All of this from a health research facility um, somewhere, actually, I think it was in the United States. Um, So when it comes to attribution, there were a few things that ticked off uh, with Secure on why this was likely Lazarus. So first off, that file they used that was previously used in a Lazarus activity, uh, much of the malware was actually used in other Lazarus linked attacks too, but one of the big ones, you know, and to hit on. So one of the initial connections to that web shell uh, first used an IP address coming from North Korea. Uh, so the connection was a single instance at the beginning of the current day that was both preceded by uh, on previous days, as well as followed by with a bit of a delay on that day going forward with connections from a proxy IP address instead. So North Korea only has three slash 24 network blocks that are all directly controlled by the North Korean government. And so the connection coming from that IP where they clearly recognized, oh crap, pulled it off, brought the proxy back online and then connected through that. with the same browser user agent is a bit of a clear indicator. that This was most likely a North Korean government, uh, threat actor, which in this case would be Lazarus. Um, So using IOCs from their analysis, they found several other victims. There was a health research facility in India. Uh, There were other victims in health research, also manufacturers of technology that are used in energy research, defense, and healthcare verticals, and then a chemical engineering department at a leading research university. So the report itself, like I said, 35 pages of very technical analysis of every single bit of tooling that Lazarus used in this attack. Uh, really interesting to follow through on that. And a whole list of uh, um, IOCs and other indicators uh, from uh, this specific instance against the health researcher. So highly recommend checking out the report in full.
1: Um, well, the activity is bad, but I'd never heard of WISC secure before. And this is a pretty dang full ass report. It sounds like really great research. I haven't heard about them before. Uh, i mean nothing strikingly new other than the fact that they're doing a lot of crap it's crazy that again a north korea nation state sponsored threat actor is going this far into actual just criminal attacks like this uh they they know their techniques i mean they're using all the right things nothing seems super sophisticated or zero day here but they obviously know what they're doing and you know a smart attacker with mimikatz PwnKit, and a few other things can can easily get into a company that's not doing due diligence i think that due diligence is a bit of the
0: piece of the puzzle too All right. so like one of the machines they targeted in october of 2022 was a windows xp machine so clearly out of date software in a medical research facility mind you
1: I'm not too surprised, though. I think you and I both know that, unfortunately, Windows XP exists. And actually, I would be less surprised governments targeting it because usually the medical makes sense, too. But usually you might find it in manufacturing or OT technology, uh, critical infrastructure, because they have very specific not proprietary it's often from big name industrial control and manufacturing companies but it, it's software that's made for a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment that only i don't know a hundred people in the world owned uh so you know they make it when xp came out and never update it because it it moves at the snail's pace uh, some of that you know something like a generator has a 20 30 year life cycle and I don't imagine they update the software over and over. So I obviously that isn't necessarily what they targeted, but the same exact thing exists in healthcare. We've talked about it many times before. They're MRI machines that are probably running Windows NT below the, the surface. So I'm going a little far back, probably more like Windows 2006. But you know what I mean. So uh, it sucks that Windows XP still exists, but the one place that, I mean, we can't entirely forgive the fact that it exists because it shows the medical and critical infrastructure industry is is screwed up in the way they actually update their devices. But what can the hospital do? (laughs) They bought an MRI machine that cost half a million dollars 15 years ago or 10 years ago, and they got to get their money's worth out of it. And they probably don't even know what version of Windows it runs behind the little built-in display. Uh, So yes xp sucks but it's there
0: yeah and one of the other things though is like like you said not, there's nothing groundbreaking here there was in fact the a lot of it was just them had a they had a web shell. they used that to install malware there weren't during there, there wasn't any fancy like living off the land attacks used in any of this as well too like all these were known threats where even just basic endpoint protection should have been able to catch a lot of this activity let alone edr tools that would have been Been able to catch some of the more sophisticated activity. Like it feels like a bit of a. I know it's victim blaming, and yes, the victims are still victims here. But like a little bit better protection deployment across the organization could have been the difference between this working and this not working. Uh, Plus, you know, patch management. The vulnerability they went after was a known one that had been patched for quite some time.
1: Yep. I would rather, by the way, for the OT companies out there first forced to use old crap, whether it has patches or not, in its end of life, they, that's where you should actually consider older technologies, like uh, even point-based firewalls with complete, you know, uh, full egress filtering uh, and, and, and ingress filtering, obviously, but very limiting things to lock it down when you have no other options but use old crap.
0: Either way, though, Lazarus is clearly still active and not just trying to earn money by hacking crypto exchanges. Stealing medical research information would be beneficial for North Korea, especially considering we're still on the tail end of it. Not even tail end, we're just in a reoccurring pandemic or endemic at this point.
1: Yeah. Pretty much anything that's unethical and uh, horrible, bad for all of human society, and really kind of crappy. That's what the North Korean government wants to do. Good job, y'all.
0: WAY TO PLANT A GIANT TARGET ON OUR BACKS NOW. (laughs) BECAUSE WE KNOW THAT THEY DON'T HACK ORGANIZATIONS OUT OF SPITE FOR MAKING
1: THEM SOMEONE HAS TO CALL OUT THE A-HOLES OR THEY'LL CONTINUE TO uh, OWN THE WORLD, AS I THINK A LOT OF POLITICAL COUNTRIES HAVE FIGURED OUT.
0: 100%. Uh, MOVING ON TO THE LAST BIT. SO JUST LAST WEEK, THE VULNERABILITY INTELLIGENCE FIRM, uh, Volncheck released a research analysis where they reviewed the, some accuracy issues in the CVSS or Common Vulnerability Scoring System, uh, of vulnerabilities in the National Vulnerability Database, which is maintained by NIST. Um, so the report they released, it's, it's not exactly like full of tons of information, but I thought it would be a good opportunity just to talk about the CVSS scoring system, uh, how it works with measuring vulnerabilities, how organizations can use it, to help prioritize the response to vulnerabilities and how organizations shouldn't use it just on its own to prioritize their response and remediation to vulnerabilities. Um, before we jump into that though, I think we probably need to go over another real quick acronym as CVE, which is, stands for common vulnerabilities and exposures, which is a reference method that was created and still maintained by MITRE. I mean, we talk about CVEs all the time, but basically it's the way to add a single tag that everyone in the industry can understand and know, okay, this proxy log on issue in Microsoft Exchange server is CVE 2021, blah, 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 or whatever. Um, Something that Corey and I have lamented, we wish we had more actively used around the industry for
1: threat actor identification as well too. Yeah, what? although it's good to know that they're using the MITRE stuff now. Or MITRE some, actually uh, the has, MITRE a, uh, has some stuff now.
0: Yeah. Thread actor numbering system as well. So anyways, CVEs. The, the easy
1: button for idiots like me is it's a score of 1 through 10 and 10 is bad. That's all I need to know. But as Mark will tell you, the people that actually are smart and technical, that 1 through 10 isn't just arbitrary. It's actually very quantitative. So it, it fits great for the technical nerds. And it's the an easy button for the idiot just that wants to know. By the way, no <laughs> you're not idiots. I love you all in the audience. I'm not an idiot too. but if you don't have time, uh... we just we just want to know, oh shut up mark. <laughs> is, pro- is proxy login bad or not? Is log 4j bad or not? Uh, it's great that there's a, a way that gives everybody an easy answer to that while still having very quantitative attributes that make it accurate.
0: So yeah, like Corey just said, CVSS scoring, it's on a 0.0 to 10.0 number, where when someone submits a CVE to via MITRE or via their own CNA to the National Vulnerability Database. CNA? What is that, Mark? Certified Numbering Authority, uh, someone who is allowed to issue their own CVE numbers, or at least authorized by MITRE to do that. When they go to this database, NIST does their best, NIST, I guess another acronym, National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST does their best to give it a CVSS score based off the description and information in the vulnerability, but they're not the only ones that can submit a CVSS score either. Um, So this research study was basically, Volncheck went in and reviewed all 120,000 CVEs that have a CVSS version 3.0 or 3.1 score. There's multiple versions of CVSS. They changed the model. They use somewhat regularly, um, CVSS three or 3.1 yeah, three, right. being the most recent one. Uh, so they found that of those 120,000 CVEs, uh, around 20% of them had both a primary and a secondary score from NIST and another vendor. And 56% of those had scoring conflicts. So like NIST would say it's a 9.8. The vendor would say it's a 7.2, um, Of all the vulnerabilities in the NVD, uh, NIST is the primary source for 97% of them. Basically, if you submit something and it doesn't already have a CVSS score tied to that CVE, NIST will go in and try and come up with one on their own. And for the most part, they're relatively accurate, but the issues that arise are when NIST has one score and someone else has another, and you as the IT or security practitioner doesn't know which one to use because they're different. Um, so before diving into like that and some ways to potentially tackle it, we should probably go over first, like how does the CVSS scoring system work? Uh, so the latest version, it's 3.1 technically. Oh,
1: let, let me explain it. You see, every year when a company has a vulnerability, uh, all of MITRE comes together and watches a hole in the ground for this little furry rodent to come out. And if the furry rodent sees a nuke in the air, it gets a 10. Right, Mark, that's it. Yeah,
0: that's That's it, episode over. Crap.
1: By the way, Groundhog Day is the stupidest thing ever. Why are we still doing that? Anyways, how are uh, CVSS scores really quantified?
0: <laughs> so they actually have a model uh, with what they call vectors. So eight different, or I guess not vectors, metrics. Eight different metrics where you have a various setting in it i guess for lack of a better word and then based off of the value for each of these metrics and a little bit of math they come out with a number of 0.0 to 10.0 now so those eight metrics the first one is the attack vector so is this vulnerability exploitable over a network so like any network most typically the internet is it only exploitable via a adjacent network so you have to be on network exploitable but on a local one not a public one Uh, Is it only exploitable with local access to the machine itself? So like malware or a user logged into that machine, or is it only exploitable with physical access to the machine itself? So as you might guess, like physical access would lower the value, the ultimate score quite considerably, whereas a network attack vector would allow it to reach up to a 10.0. Next step is attack complexity, and there's only two values here, either low or high. And basically what it means is a high is it requires something outside of the attacker's control in order to succeed, whereas a low is the attacker with reasonable certainty could exploit it on the first attempt. So an example of a high might be, you know, it's a, a memory overflow that only happens when it also this other activity is occurring on the system. And so they have to time it just perfectly in order to be able to read a byte off the buffer. Whereas a low is it's just a simple exploit where you exploit a string, and it goes and gets you remote code execution. Um, The third uh, metric is privileges required, which is either none, low, or high. So do you need to be authenticated? If you are authenticated, does a low user privilege work, or do you have to have administrative or system level access in order to exploit the flaw? obviously no authentication would raise the value the final CVS- CVSS score whereas requiring high levels of privileges would lower the potential ceiling of the score next up is user interaction which is either none or required basically does the attacker require someone else to do something in order to exploit it uh, a score of none would be like they go in and just exploit the flaw whereas cross-site scripting and cross-server request forgery all typically require user interaction of some sort. Like cross-site scripting, yes, you inject something, but you need a user to go visit that page to trigger the code, script, whatever, uh, and actually damage the system for lack of a better word. Um, Scope is one that's a little difficult to wrap your head around, uh, at least in my opinion, but the scope metric is either unchanged or changed. And basically the, the way to explain this is uh, we're talking about vulnerabilities in like a, a system or a module on the systems, so like the authentication component for amazon.com. Maybe it's got a, a vulnerability in it that could give you code execution. When you exploit that is your, uh, the activity you're allowed to, or I guess the, the impact that you're causing on the system limited to that one component or with your exploit of this vulnerability, can you impact a wider, uh, set of components on the system. Uh, so unchanged versus change being unchanged is you're limited to the thing you're attacking change means by exploiting this vulnerability, you gain access to a wider system. And then finally, there are the three impacts on the CIA triad, as we call it in security, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So for each of those by exploiting the vulnerability, what is the impact on them? None lower high. So it might have, like, let's say you have the ability, uh, like Heartbleed as an example. So Heartbleed was a vulnerability where you send a specific packet to a OpenSSL uh, TLS web server, and it will respond back with a chunk of memory off of that server. Uh, it doesn't crash OpenSSL. It doesn't crash the web server. doesn't allow you to change any data, but it allows you to read a chunk of memory off of there. And so the impact to availability would be none. You're not crashing the server. The impact to integrity would also be none. You're not changing any of the data on the server. But the impact to confidentiality would be high because you're able to effectively read the entirety of memory off of that server. An impact to integrity would be like a denial of ser- or Availability would be like a denial of service vulnerability. If you exploit this, it crashes the process. You could do it over and over and over and stop someone from being able to use it. An impact to integrity would be like if you're able to modify a database through a SQL injection flaw, um, where you could change the data within that system that would impact the integrity of the data in there. So basically, depending on how you fill out each of these values, like network attack vector, high complexity, low privileges required, low impact on confidentiality, so on and so forth, gets fed into this calculator, this calculation that then spits out a number of 0.0 to 10.0. So back to the research study, uh, they found that using cross-site scripting and CSRF as an example, the user interaction should always be set to required. Uh, But they found that 1.1% of primary sources and 15% of secondary sources did not have the user interaction metric for these types of issues set to required. So basically, there was an issue in the calculation that they did, that scoring vector, uh, which caused the calculation to be incorrect for that one specifically. Um, so like CBSS, it's simple, yet also complicated. You have to understand it in order to do it correctly. But at the end of the day, it spits out a 0.0 to 10.0 number that makes it simple for IT practitioners to act on it and use it as a piece of prioritization. That said, though, like CVSS on its own shouldn't be your only factor for prioritization. There's other things out there too. Like, is there exploitable code uh, out there in the wild for this vulnerability? Or is it just a theoretical issue? Because like the reality is, you know, a 10.10 or 10.0 out of 10 vulnerability. It sounds scary and critical, but if there's no actual code out there to go, if there's no one actively exploiting it, it's potentially less severe than like a high that does have known exploit code that is being actively exploited out there in the wild. So, I, we've actually seen, like, in our vulnerability management tools we use internally at WatchGuard, like, ones advertised by other providers too, uh, just using the CVS- CVSS on its own is actually falling out of favor. And now they're taking in information like, what's the criticality of the system itself? Uh, what is the maturity of the exploit code out there? And using that to factor into the scoring to ultimately spit out a more accurate number and help you prioritize your remediation. Um, funny enough, so CBSS actually kind of takes a little bit of this into account itself too. There's So that was the primary metric group I talked about, those eight little things that you can do to set a score. There's actually two different additional metric groups that you can use to modify that score as well too. Uh, there's the temporal metric group, which is... Somewhat rarely used, but still there. Um, it's basically for things that change over time, but would be consistent across all environments. So like there's the exploit maturity or exploit code maturity, which is either unproven proof of concept, functional or high. So basically for this vulnerability, is there exploit code available? And how good is that exploit code? Is it automated or does it still like, you know, it's theoretical, but unproven, uh, and that can affect the score as well. The remediation level, so is there a patch available for the vulnerability? If so, is it a temporary fix, a official fix, or just a workaround? That could affect the score. And then what is the report confidence? So for the vulnerability, they've accepted it, they've given it to CBE, but uh, how confirmed is the actual report? Has the vendor come out and said, yes, this is an issue? Has the security industry decided, yeah, this seems reasonable, or is it unknown? So these temporal metrics you can tack on to those original eight and modify the score as well, too. And then the third group is the environmental metric group, which is meant for individual organizations uh, that lets an analyst customize the CBSS score depending on the importance of the affected asset within that user's own organization. Uh, So specifically, you set like these new metrics for CIA So confidentiality, integrity, or availability based off a specific system that this vulnerability might be on. So is that for that system, um, if it were to be, if this vulnerability were exploited on it for your organization, what would the impact to integrity or availability or confidentiality be like, is this a business critical system where if the availability of it, if it's taken offline, that's a critical impact to your company. Then the environmental metric for availability would be high. Basically, this is a way for you to take a existing CBSS score, apply it to one system in your organization and set these different values for that specific system to change the score. And again, help you prioritize remediating this issue. So that was me talking a lot. The reality is CBSS on its own is a great starting point. There are ways for you as a practitioner to take these temporal metric groups and the environmental metric groups and use CVSS with a few other settings to give you a more realistic number of how important it is. But on the face of it, like zero to 10 makes it easy for it, where if you don't have the ability to go in and do all that, you at least have something to help you prioritize issues. And I think that's actually pretty great.
1: If you know there's caveats, I think it's good enough for some situations like a uh... Something might be a ten, but if you, I don't know, have it internally on a test system without it, it, there could be caveats. But I would rather people at least pay attention to CVSS if, if nothing at all. Correct.
0: And there are going to be situations where the scoring's different. Uh, it was about a month ago we talked about that JSON Web Token vulnerability that has since been revoked. Uh, but at By the, the time, way,
1: good job on that prediction, Mark. It's. I totally called the, that. The industry I don't think I explained it well enough.
0: So I guess tangent time. Uh, with that vulnerability, it was uh they believed they could get code execution in a really popular library for managing JSON web tokens. But the the analogy I came up with after we finished the podcast is uh, so the, the issue is it's not in the library, it's in the implementation of the library. And so my analogy that I ended up using after that was considered the JSON web token library. It's like a blender. You can put anything you want into a blender. It's meant for like, you know, put fruits in it to make a smoothie, uh, put like, I don't know, what else do you put in a blender? Uh, peppers, in it to make salsa, ball bearings. Yes. But you can also, you can put your hand in the blender and it will run. It will blend your hand up. That isn't a vulnerability in the blender. That is a vulnerability in your implementation of the blender. So the library, yes, they they could have controls to stop you from putting your hand inside of it and turning it on. But the reality is it would take other poor coding practices on your part in order to have it. Although if
1: it's like McDonald's coffee, someone will sue them and they will have to put a control as in a sticker on the drive-through window telling you hot coffee will burn you. (laughs) Correct. Yes. And that's basically
0: what uh, um, what Open, or what was it, OAuth0 OAuth, uh, ended up doing with their JSON web token library. They put some barriers, some guardra- guardrails around the inputs to this function to stop people from intentionally spilling the hot coffee in their lap when they were using it. But long story short, there was a petition by even more passionate security researchers out there than me. Uh, that ended up getting the CVE revoked by GitHub, and uh, Unit 42 has since corrected their blog post on it. But when that was still an issue, NIST had it graded at like a 9.8, whereas Unit 42 had it at like a 7.8 or something because of discrepancies in how they calculated the CVSS scoring. And that's going to happen. Uh, I'd say, honestly, if the vendor is on there, they are typically the ones that know the more most information about the vulnerability. So there's a Higher likelihood that their scoring is more accurate, whereas NIST all they know is just the description of the flaw itself in that CVE record, and they kind of have to guess based off of that. So if you do see a conflict, like just keep that in mind if you're still trying to prioritize it. But either way, like CVSS, it's a fantastic system, and it does make all of our jobs a little bit easier, uh, especially when paired with other metrics for how to actually prioritize responding to a vulnerability. Um, so Either way, cool report from uh mm-hmm. Well done on their part. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter while it still exists. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.